Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com, the show that's dedicated to saving you money on buying and owning a vehicle. Now, here's your host, Rick Popley. Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks, where each week we help you make smarter choices about buying and owning a vehicle and save money. Hello, everyone. I'm Rick Popley, your host and proprietor. Glad you can join us. The longest-running show on television about automobiles is Motor Week, a weekly show that has been on public broadcasting stations since 1981. To put that into perspective, back then a cassette player was considered a high-end audio system. The Lexus, Infiniti, and Scion brands hadn't been created, and you couldn't buy a Hyundai or Kia in the United States. My guest today will be John Davis, who created the Motor Week show and has served as host and executive producer since it started more than 30 years ago. John has won numerous awards over the years, including two Emmys, and is highly respected among automotive journalists and industry executives for his experience and knowledge. So we look forward to talking with him today about the state of the auto industry and what he sees for the future. But before we start picking his brain, here's this week's auto news you might be able to use. The 2015 Ford Focus will get a facelift and a new engine option, a turbocharged 1-liter 3-cylinder. This 3-cylinder engine, part of Ford's EcoBoost family of turbocharged engines, currently is available in the smaller Ford Fiesta. As in the Fiesta, the 1-liter engine will be offered only with a 6-speed manual transmission. The facelift for the 2015 Focus will include a trapezoid-shaped grille like those on the Ford Fusion, Fiesta, and the 2015 Mustang. The 2015 Focus will go on sale in the fall. On last week's show, we talked about growing demand for mobile technology on wheels and the connected car. This week, it looks like Ford Motor Company wants to disconnect from Microsoft. Unconfirmed news reports said that Ford is going to switch from Microsoft software to BlackBerry's QNX software for the next generation of its Sync infotainment system. Media reports said QNX will be less expensive to license than Microsoft's technology and improve the speed and flexibility of Sync in Ford vehicles. Sync allows making phone calls and playing music by voice commands, gives directions, reads text messages, and performs other functions. It debuted in 2007 and has been installed in more than 7 million Ford vehicles using the Microsoft Windows automotive operating system. Sync has been cited for helping Ford increase its sales, but the system also has been plagued with reliability issues. Sync has been blamed as a key reason Ford has performed poorly in recent quality and reliability surveys conducted by J.D. Power & Associates and Consumer Reports magazine. BlackBerry's QNX software currently is used in Audis, BMWs, and other brands. None of the companies mentioned would comment on the reports. 33% of new vehicles purchased in February were financed with loans of 72 months or longer. That is a record percentage for long-term loans, according to J.D. Power & Associates, and it means that one-third of new vehicle buyers are in hock for six years or longer. The average transaction price for a new vehicle also hit a record level this month. Power says the average out-the-door price was $29,130, $400 more than the previous record. Still another record in February. Power says leasing has hit an all-time high of 26.5% of retail vehicle sales. The average loan term for a new vehicle is now 66 months, and the average amount financed is 27700 Power says only 3% of new vehicles are financed with loans of 84 months or longer. That's a good thing, because you don't want to be paying for a car for seven years or more. We covered auto loans and leasing issues in previous episodes of Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. You can listen to the October 17th show, The Loan Arranger Rides Again, and the November 7th show, Should You Lease or Buy 
here on TalkZone.com. And that is this week's auto news you might be able to use. Many consumers and aficionados now get their car news online or through other electronic means, in part because that way they can get video and graphics, not just words and still photographs. Well, the Motorique television show on PBS stations has been doing that for more than 30 years, providing road tests, news, and repair and maintenance information in a weekly television show that started in 1981. Motor Week was the first television show devoted to consumer-oriented automotive news and information and is by far the longest-running and also the most watched show of that type. Joining us today is John Davis, the creator, host, and executive producer of Motor Week. He has been behind the wheel of this show since the beginning. John is an award-winning journalist and one of the founders of the North American Car and Truck of the Year Awards, announced annually at the Detroit Auto Show. He twice has been recognized for his television work with Emmy Awards. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, Rick. It is a delight to be with you today. Thanks very much for asking. You're welcome, and uh, thanks for being here, John. John, you've, you've been testing and evaluating cars for more than 30 years. Is it easier or harder now to pick winners and losers? Oh, it's much harder, Rick. Uh, when we started, uh, I think if a car was subpar and there were, you know, a number of them, it was pretty easy to, to, uh, figure out who had it dialed in well and who was sort of missing the boat. Now, it's almost impossible for a consumer and thus for people testing cars to find something that's really all bad. I mean, you know, yeah, you, it, it means that we nitpick now. It's like your your baseline for just your average vehicle, even inexpensive vehicles, if there's any left, um, is very high. Uh, and the amount of equipment you get on some of the least uh, expensive vehicles is quite high. So we, we find ourselves nitpicking. It's like, uh, it's sort of like if you test a high-end car, you know, does it really excel above what is already an excellent level? And even for a moderately priced uh, car or utility, uh, most all of them do very, very well. And, and often we get down to, well, do we like some of the electronics and the technology features and how they operate? You were mentioning at the start of your show. That's becoming a big source of um, contention with a lot of car testers, including us, how well some systems uh, accommodate the driver and how, how some don't. It's also, I mean, it's one of the big draws of uh, new vehicles now. I, I have a relative who... Uh, has driven, I think, Lexus vehicles for several years, and she was highly impressed with the Ford Escape because the, uh, I guess, the sync system not only told yeah. her what song was playing, but who the artist was and what album it came from. It, it's a little disturbing to to me because I love driving, the mm-hmm. whole atmosphere of driving, to find that people are spending, frankly, an awful lot more time looking at the stereo and the climate control systems than they are just, you know, what the cars like to drive. But on the other hand, while that may bother me as a purist, it's totally understandable because once people get past the, the looks of a car and, you know, the, the financing and all the rest of the stuff that's involved in actually making the decision, they're going to be sitting behind the wheel, probably in traffic, and they want to be as comfortable or entertained or connected as they possibly can be. Right. So what are some of the things that, that uh, separate the uh, best from the rest these days? Well, I think basically any vehicle that relies totally or at least mostly on a touch screen that has no tactile feel uh, and you where it takes more than one or two touches to get to something that a good old-fashioned mm-hmm. switch used to do, I right. think it's going to get downgraded by anybody that tests cars and by a consumers, which is pretty obvious from some of those quality ratings you were mentioning. Uh, so we look a lot at that. Uh, we we still want, and we find the best cars have redundant mechanical controls with tactile feels, so you don't have to look at them for the, the most commonly used features. And if they do that and balance that with the latest uh, phone-like uh, touchscreens, uh, that's okay. But that 
that's a lot of our uh, attention. The other thing is some of the advanced safety features like radar braking and lane keep assist. We want those systems to be there when we need them, but we like to be able to shut them off. And if you can't cut off the electronic nannies and they can be very annoying in stop-and-go traffic, uh, that often irritates us enough to, to not like a, a vehicle as much as we might otherwise. When you say uh, the electronic nannies, give me an example of what uh, annoys you about these. Uh, I think if you've got uh, a situation where you're in stop and go traffic and you have not, and you haven't reset your radar braking system, every time you start moving, it can start going off, uh, and you have to fuss with it uh, with the distances that we found in some cars to be a little more difficult to get to overcome than others. Some uh, lane keep assist uh, via systems where it lets you know if you're wandering over the center line or the blind spot uh, systems, uh, sometimes they're overly sensitive. I mean, if somebody can be quite a ways back and it still triggers the blind spot. So we like to have some ability to either adjust it or if we're in certain driving situations, easily turn it off without having to stop or reconfigure a lot more uh, within the the car's infrastructure. So those kind of things, but I I think they're really just teething uh, issues with getting this new technology set up for a lot of drivers. Uh, the, you mentioned these things that uh, are, are are nice features to have, or you know, really safety features. You have they to are. wonder, though, is if others get annoyed, do they turn them off and not use them? Well, I'm afraid they do. Hmm. Uh, I can tell you that there are people that uh, some of them even work for for Motor Week. That the first thing they do when they get in a car is turn most of those systems off. Hmm. Uh, fortunately, most of them are uh, default on when you turn the ignition, which, again, can be a pain in the neck if you're doing uh, a lot of stops. But, you know, it's probably good because if you get someone else behind the wheel that's less um, annoyed by them, they at least know they're there and they're there to help. Uh, I I sort of look at them the same way I do with uh, my favorite long-time annoyance, and that is that people drive around with their fog lights on all the time. <laughs> you know, it just drives me insane because, you know, I wish they would default to off every time that you turn the ignition. But, you know, in those cases, you turn them on and people leave them on no matter what the weather, and I find that very annoying. Well, they look good. They, they, they look well, good. They, may look, they may think they look good, but they sure don't look good to an oncoming driver, especially if they're out of adjustment, like you've run the lower part of your fascia up against a curb and they're now cockeyed and oh. in all sorts of spaces. You know, people, you know, many fog lamps are down so low that they're just asking for for impact. Okay. Uh, one of the, uh, the features that I force myself to try now and then on test vehicles is um, manual uh, shifting with an automatic transmission where you can... Um... Oh, you mean the, the one-trick pony? <laughs> I yes. mean, it really is. Unless you're in something like a Porsche with Tiptronic or right. something. How many people really use that? Well, I asked my wife recently because we've had a car for seven years that has that feature, and she yeah. said, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. My spouse's car also has it, and I don't think I've ever seen the... Uh, the shifter put into the quote-unquote manual position. I remember when Chrysler uh, came out with it, and, and they were really the first to have it in the mass uh, market. And, you know, we all got in it. We played with it for about a block and a half, and right. that was it. Right. So. Yeah, automatic transmissions do a pretty good job of uh, on their own, I think. Well, recently we had a, a Porsche 911, uh, and uh, it we we're at a racetrack with it, and most of the time, uh, we just let the automatic shift for itself, and it did a spectacular job. So, yeah, the the new uh, automatic manuals, especially the ones that have the uh, a mechanical clutch with the microprocessor, uh, they do a superb job, and they do it quicker than you can do it. Uh, we have to uh, pause here for a short break, but when we come back, John, I'd like to ask you about the North American Car and Truck of the Year Awards. Okay. Please stay with us. We'll have more with John Davis, the host and executive producer of the MotorWeek television show on PBS stations.
Welcome back to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Here's Rick Hopley. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with John Davis, the creator, host, and executive producer of the Motor Week television show on PBS, which at 33 years and counting is the longest-running automotive show on television. If you have a question or comment, the phone lines are open. You can join the conversation by calling 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. John, you were uh, instrumental in starting the North American Car of the Year and Truck of the Year Awards, uh, which is one of many, you know, Car of the Year Awards. But right. How is that uh, that different and... And uh, how did you go about it? Well, I have to give uh, most of the credit to Chris Jensen, who at the time was uh, automotive editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And it's hard to believe it's been over 20 years ago, the awards are in their 21st year this year, mm-hmm. that Chris called me one day and said he was uh, talking to a small group of, of journalists about doing essentially a North American award because really we were the only major car-consuming country that we knew of that wasn't doing some kind of a single mm. national award. Lots of publications, including my own, had awards, but there wasn't one that represented journalists across all stripes and that was truly independent of any one particular uh, media. Uh, it, it, we very clearly were modeling it after uh, the uh, European Car of the Year, which was very well known to all of us. And uh, we followed a lot of their uh, uh, guys and then sort of decided the only place you could possibly uh, present the award had to be at the North American International Auto Show in Detroit, uh, the first big auto show of the calendar year uh, and really America's premier global show. And we got the cooperation uh, from the folks uh, in Detroit. And Voila, 21 years later, we help kick off uh, the show uh, every January with our announcing it. But the awards, there's 49 journalists uh, from all sorts of media, print, electronic, you name it, the Internet. Uh, they, we go through a, a balloting process, uh, uh, three votes and all, that uh, goes all through the fall. Uh, the first one's just sort of like narrowing it down to a big group, and then we uh, narrow, we actually take a formal vote and narrow it down to a small group, and then we uh, do the final voting. And uh, it's been very rewarding for me to be involved with it, and uh, I think we've had a pretty good run of, of having our finger on what was happening in the business. Uh, this year, uh, it was an unusual situation in that both awards went uh, to General Motors, but that just showed to us uh, as a group of journalists, that GM indeed had come back from uh, its almost uh, you know, going away from its bankruptcy and was real making uh, its way in the global automotive scene again. So. Right. The, the Chevrolet Corvette being the car of the year and the Chevrolet Silverado uh, the truck of the year. Now, there, uh, y- you don't look at every single model available. It's just those that are new and redesigned. Correct. It is. There is a criteria. Uh, a vehicle has to be new to a certain large degree. It can't just be uh, a little trim change. Uh, in most cases, uh, it has to be more than just a new engine. Uh, we do a lot of back and forth when we do that initial uh, long list, as we call it. Uh, the jurors all basically have a chance to put in their two cents worth in, add or subtract vehicles, or at least give reasons for it. Uh, we also have uh, uh, certain rules about when the pricing of the vehicle has to be out and when the vehicle has to actually be on sale. Uh, when it's all said and done, we start out with a list oh, in late August, early September of probably about oh, 30 or 40 cars and maybe about 20 or 25 uh, truck-like vehicles <laughs> and a truck, and, and now it's trucks and utilities. Right. And uh, then we'll do uh, a vote where we get it down to about 10 of each. And then uh, we'll do a final vote and announce the uh, three finalists uh, just before the the Detroit show uh, in December. And then we basically, none of us involved know know the winner. And we stand up there on usually a snowy morning in uh, early January and announce the winner in Detroit. Right. Uh, now, uh, years ago when that started sometime in the 90s, it didn't get a lot of notice. No. Uh, but now uh, I have to say is that 
Chevrolet, for example, this year jumped right on it and in, in, in its advertising. Well, I think that's a credit to Chris and, and the others involved with the original steering committee and, and the vision of making this the certainly preeminent as far as the consumer goes, Automotive Award, because it wasn't necessarily tied to, to any one publication or any certain group of, uh, of uh, fans of that publication, uh, and put us up into the ranks of having a true you know, North American, Canada, and U.S. Car of the Year Award. Right. Now, uh, you mentioned that, uh, that your show, Motor Week, does its own, um, uh, Driver's Choice yes. Awards. What were some of those, uh, this year that, that excelled? Well, I don't think it's any great surprise, and I will tell you what our, t- our top award, and we give our awards out at Chicago, the mm-hmm. Chicago Auto Show. Uh, we also picked the Chevrolet, uh, Corvette Stingray, not just as the best car, but as the best of the year overall. But for uh, an enthusiast like yourself, we had some, our awards are directed towards enthusiasts. That's why we call them driver's choice awards. But on the other hand, we also pick, uh, 13 different categories. At least that's where it is right now. So we pick everything from, uh, performance cars to convertibles to family sedans, but the the primary thing is it must be enjoyable to drive, and it must also still have some reasonable value for the money. Now, this year we did something a little different with our best subcompact car. We all enjoy driving the Ford Fiesta ST so much. It's the first time we've ever picked a small utilitarian car class and given it to one specific performance model. But to us, you know, it was a, an absolute bargain. Everybody that you know, should be able to learn how to drive it, and it was just a great little car. Uh, the Fiesta ST, what engine has, is that? You know, I haven't got it on the top of my head. 1.6 liter 1. turbo? 1.6, I believe, turbo, turbo yeah. correct. Manual yeah. transmission only? Yes, and, we, and, and that right there is very limiting. Right. But we basically said, this is driver's choice, so why not? Uh, a vehicle, I think, that also fell into that category, but we made the case for it, as for its entire lineup, was the one step up, the best compact car with the Mazda 3. Mm-hmm. Here, both manual and automatic, uh, it's a very enjoyable car to drive. It's great to look at. You can get into one fairly inexpensively, but you do have to be careful of how many options you add to it. Uh, but it just stood out heads and tails above the rest. And like the North American Car of the Year Awards, we pick from what we've tested that year, so it has to be a new vehicle, mm-hmm. or a vehicle is allowed to have one repeat win. Okay. Now, uh, the, the Mazda 3, if I remember correctly, was a finalist for the North American Car of the Year. Correct. It was a finalist, and it did very well in the voting, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So that uh, that's, you know, I, I'm always impressed when a smaller company such as Mazda or Subaru, which I think had a Truck of the Year finalist, do so well. Because, the, I mean, they are... When you're competing with the Toyotas and General Motors of the world, that's not easy. And speaking of Subaru, they won our best sports sedan ah. award. Now, this is one that normally goes to the likes of a BMW or an Audi mm. or somebody like that. But we thought their WRX, uh, which is basically a you know their Impreza now rebadged with some special performance work, but not so much that it makes it unaffordable. Uh, we actually took that car to a racetrack for a week and flogged the heck out of it, and we're thoroughly pleased with what we found um one more car that i think surprised a lot of people and showed how far gm has come back is our best family sedan which normally goes to a mid-sized sedan like mm-hmm. the accord or camry this year it went to the chevrolet impala you know one generation they went from basically a a rental car and a fleet car to basically a really standout uh large sedan right the uh the Impella, I think, uh, when it came out sometime spring or summer mm-hmm. of last year, got uh, a lot of good publicity, but it did not rank among the three finalists in the Car of the Year competition. I think that says a lot about how intense the uh, competition mm-hmm. was and how you asked earlier about how many good vehicles are out there. It was It's tough for a vehicle to rise above uh, the... Uh, just already excellence, and uh, and it says a lot about the jurors. They really, we voted. There was a lot of online discussion among the juries about jurors about what should be included, the merits of one vehicle over another. It was. It's always a very entertaining uh, event to be involved with. Huh. Um, the um, 
just out of curiosity, you know, how many Toyotas were on your list of uh, Driver's Choice Awards? Let's see. Toyota often has a fairly good standing, but this year, looking at our list, uh, uh, there's not a single one. And I think part of that reason is that when we look at a Toyota, unfortunately, uh, we tend to look at it as more of an appliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't seem to excel in handling or acceleration or braking. It does fine, but it doesn't just sort of knock us between the eyes and say this is an enthusiast vehicle or one that an enthusiast will really enjoy driving. It doesn't mean we wouldn't own one for reliability, right? but uh, it doesn't exactly light our fire. I think the 2014 Corolla fits into that category. It's competent, but... You know, yeah. Just... And and it, to be fair, you know, the Corolla, we've given Corolla awards in the past too, but this year just nothing from them sort of just rose to the top. And, and we discuss them and we talk about them. Uh, you know, and even next year, you know, I know when we get to our large uh, utility next year, um, this year the the winner was the Hyundai Santa Fe. Uh, not only does it drive well, but again, it was a good bargain. But we'll have to consider the new Toyota Highlander, which is a very popular vehicle. Uh-huh. And it'll be in the running next year, and it's got a lot going for it. But, you know, is it going to break through and really become a, something that we'd all like to own? Well, I don't know yet. Can uh, Toyota, because of its uh, its popularity and its reputation for uh, reliability, can uh, do they have to put out standout products that just you know make you say, "Hey, wow, this is really great"? Well, obviously they don't. They 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 sell an awful lot of vehicles, mm-hmm. but I do think that since there are mass marketed vehicles out there that appeal to lots of people that really do have great feel that, that that are cars you want to drive. I think the question has to be, why don't they do it? Uh, we see other companies uh, like Ford and General Motors and Chrysler and, and ha- even Honda, you know, say we want our cars to be something you will be very pleased. Everybody in the family will like driving, not just an appliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, admittedly, Toyota does do some products that fit that. Uh, uh, realm, especially uh, in, in, in the Scion brand. I think there's some excellent products there. And you look at some of the high-performance products up in the Lexus brand. They're, they're really exceptional cars. Uh, everybody's crazy about uh, the new IS, which is a very, very nice car, uh, and compare it very favorably to the likes of the BMW 3 Series and, and the ATS and Cadillac. So they are capable of doing it. They just haven't chosen to do that much of it recently uh, in their mainstream brand. I mean, we all remember the Supers and the Celicas right. and the Mr. Twos and all that. We'd like to see some more of that come back. And on that vein, uh, the concept they showed at New York, uh, I mean, at uh, Detroit this year, you know, we're kind of all hoping that might be the next uh, Super or Celica. Right. John, we have to pause for another break okay. here. When we come back, we can continue our discussion. Please stay with us. We're talking with John Davis, the host of the Motor Week television show. Now, more cars, trucks, and bucks on TalkZone.com with your host, Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're talking with John Davis, the host of the PBS television show, Motor Week, about a variety of automotive topics. You can find out more about the show, including broadcast times, at www.MotorWeek.org. And if you have a question or comment for John, the phone lines are open. You can join the conversation by calling 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. Before the break, John, we were uh, talking about Toyota and how they have been very successful building reliable appliance-like vehicles that uh, are often boring. But, you know, recently the um, chairman of Toyota Motors in uh, Japan, mm-hmm. Akio Toyota, the grandson of the founder, has decreed that there won't be only boring cars coming from Toyota. And I'm anxious to see what the next generation Camry is going to look like. 
Well, I'd like to see them spiff up not just the outsides, which may be a little touchy because a lot of people that buy um, mid-sized cars really don't want them to look too outrageous, although you could argue that cars like the Hyundai Sonata have changed that. Right, but look uh, at and, the Ford and, and Fusion. Fusion, yeah, which is and a spectacular Mazda car. 6. Right. So yeah. I don't buy that argument, but, you know, that's what you hear, that, you know, Toyota people don't want it too ostentatious, but okay. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, it's underneath the skin. Um, you know, I want to, when I hit the brake, I, if I've got a, my family in the car and I hit the brake on any car, especially, you know, let's say a Toyota or a Honda or a Ford, I don't care what brand it is, I want that braking system to bring me to a halt quickly, securely, have great feel. I want to be able to understand through the foot and my hands on the wheel what that car is doing, especially if the weather conditions aren't perfect. Uh, I don't necessarily want to know that I've got some electronic uh, device that's going to do that, like radar braking. That's nice. But I want to know that I've got secure control of the car. So the car has to communicate with me. Uh, and, and I've got to have confidence it will always stop in the distances that I think it should stop. And while I'm sure you, if you, that Toyotas do that, I mean, we our testing doesn't show that they are uh, severely deficient in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. But it just doesn't rise above uh, the, the what could be considered normal. And here you have, depending on the day, the largest car company in the world, and they should be doing better. I always had that argument about General Motors. It took near bankruptcy for them to start doing it, it seems. Uh, and I think if you're, you know, I look at Volkswagen, which is vying for the top spot. When you get into a Volkswagen, whatever else you may think about the vehicles, they feel good to drive, uh, they handle well, uh, they they brake well, and there's a certain confidence uh, that you get from being behind the wheel of one of them. And I think basically Toyota and GM and Ford and everybody ought to be doing the same thing. Hmm. Uh, Toyota, in, in uh, recent crash tests conducted by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, hasn't mm-hmm. done well. They've done, in fact, they've done poorly. Well, that's because of that the uh, new partial right. offset test, right? Which I I think has stung uh, Toyota oh, yeah. quite a bit, and it has. It's actually stung everybody, with possible exception of maybe Volvo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the the uh, that partial offset test for people that aren't familiar with it, you know, kind of moves the the barrier from just hitting the driver's side of the car to just hitting really the front fender area. Right. And it gets around a lot of the um, crash-absorbing uh, structure that's been put into cars. And I think, unfortunately, it shows that when whether the federal government or uh, IIHS comes out with a test, that automakers have been designing to beat the test. Right. Right, and so when the test changes, guess what? Most everybody doesn't uh, doesn't work, and it takes, of course, a thorough redesign of the vehicle in many cases to uh, to beat it. I guarantee you, next go around, when these cars get redesigned that are failing now, I don't care who makes them, they will pass next time. Right, I, uh, Toyota has been running television commercials yep. touting its safety. You know, I think on the electronic stuff, right. Primarily, yeah. Right, you know, one of the companies that has impressed me in uh, in the um, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety's crash test is uh, Subaru. They've come uh, yes. up. They've come yes. up with some really good scores, and and again, that's a small company. It's a small company, and in order to to ace it, for lack of a better word, this first round of this partial offset uh, test, which basically. Uh, you know, well, I'll get into that in a second. But in order to do that, you had to have some clairvoyance. You had to look and see, know that your cars were not going to pass, and and say right away we're going to make sure we do well. Uh-huh. Or to have already been looking down the pike when you did the last generation and say we're going to go above what everybody is expecting and above what is needed to uh, pass the test. And I think that's really what the IIHS was looking for. They knew when they changed, they brought out the test, didn't so much change the test, when they inaugurated this new test, that a lot of car companies would fail. But they wanted to see if there were any out there that had been thinking ahead. And Subaru had, and and, and Volvo had, and I'm sure there's some others. Um, the the gestation behind the IIHS test is, is after they did uh, move their partial offset test 
I'm sorry, when they started doing their offset test where you would just hit the front uh, left side of the car, mm -hmm. everybody started passing it with flying colors, right. and yet they looked at the data, and there were still a lot of people dying. There were a lot of insurance ah. claims for that, and they said, what's going on here? And then they looked at the data closely and found that where they were still having fatalities is where people were, say, clipping telephone poles or almost missing the car that was coming into them but still hitting that uh, left front fender area, and that's what gave them the reason to uh, look into starting this new test. Right. It's been quite illuminating, as you said. Yes, and, and of course, uh, again, if you're an organization such as the IIHS, you don't want to just go out of business because everybody's passing your test. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, they they I used to be a very big critic of them in the early days because I'm thinking this is insurance companies looking to right. keep their rates low or you know, they or or their you know, whatever. There's a there's a financial motive here that has nothing to do with necessarily auto safety. Uh, I of course have completely changed my uh, opinion. I think these folks and I know and we work with IIHS from time to time on, on different features, I think they have done an incredible job of making everybody safer behind the wheel. And uh, and they went far beyond what was uh, required by law, and they keep pushing the envelope. And frankly, now they're pushing it into all these electronic safety systems and even you know like traction control and stuff and seeing which ones work better than the others. And I say more power to them. I think they've done a, all of us that drive a great service. Mm -hmm. Right. I uh, I don't think it's widely known is that the IIHS has opened a new facility uh, dedicated to testing automated or aut autonomous systems that you know apply the brakes and sound alarms. Uh, That's right. When, when you're about to hit that. something, so. And it's a covered facility. Uh, uh. It actually is uh, protected from rain and snow, so they'll be able to carry out these testing. They have a, a large proving ground anyway. But they'll be able to carry out all these tests uh, basically year-round, which up till now they haven't been able to do. And um, they're pretty amazing people, and they're very—they're as passionate about what they do as the most die-hard automotive enthusiast and writer is about what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're—they're—they're they're, they're passionate people. They're not just, you know, bureaucrats or people in there looking to to show somebody up. They want. Everybody, they want everybody to pass their test huh. so they can move on to the next. Now, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which uh, which uh, makes the right. safety regulations and crash test vehicles, I think is much more limited uh, financially. I think they're limited more financially, and I think they're also obviously uh, there's a lot more politics. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that they've been uh, instrumental in focusing attention over roll on rollover mm -hmm. uh, possibilities right, for right. some of their even you could argue that it's nothing but a mechanical a mathematical formula and that it's not as valid in the real world as it could be, but they got everybody to play, pay attention to it. Uh, so I think they have. While their crash tests are arguably not as advanced as what IIHS is doing, I think they have played their part. But sure, they they are dependent on a federal budget for what they can do. Now, uh, you've mentioned uh, we've both uh, been talking about these automatic safety features, such as adaptive cruise control, which you know maintains a set distance with a it drives vehicle my front. wife crazy because <laughs> she can't understand why the car's slowing down. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, my research, I've tried it a few times when yeah. you're on the highway and somebody's doing two miles per hour slower. Right. Well, am I going to just slow down and follow them? No, I see oh. a, a whole line of cars coming up behind me in the left lane. So what do I do? I pass the guy. Of course. <laughs> I think in some cases it actually makes you do, I won't say unsafe things, but right. things that you might not normally do. And, you know, and your attention might be jerked back to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not always sure that these systems help. Well, I mean, that's, uh, what, what about forward collision warning? I, there, there have been a couple of times where I'm just I'm looking at the stereo. I'm trying to find mm. that that third touch point on the right. screen, you know, right. to to change a radio station. And uh, you know, and they go go off. There was one on a Cadillac. I mean, it it sounded an alarm and had this 
bright, yeah, bright red uh, warning and flashing and you know in the in the windshield. And you think you're you think it's imminent? I mean, when that happens, if it if it hasn't gone off for a while, or the first time you get into a car that you're testing, like you and I do, and it goes out, you know, you jump off your seat. Mm-hmm. What are the pluses and minuses of all these automatic safety features? Well, I guess the pluses are the minuses are is I think we're we're going to pay less attention to our, our driving, and mm. that's I think unfortunate. Uh, the pluses are is I guess we're moving more uh, towards the. Uh, Autonomous car and self-driving car, and I got—I was on uh, another radio show here locally uh, in Baltimore, where our offices are near, and I said, you know, I'm not very happy about the about the coming self-driving car. It's against everything I stand for, and the phones lit up with people just chastising me. Mm. Uh, and while some of them were just people that were lazy that didn't want to drive themselves, there's an enormous market out there of folks that are unable to drive right, because right. of some you know, physical handicap or whatever or even age that would love to have a you know love to have the mobility that a car provides uh, and would love to have something like a self-driving vehicle so I'm not quite as strident against it but I do think all this hardware is taking us down that road and I think we're going to get there as soon as the uh, liability lawyers can figure out how to let us have self-driving cars not get sued out of existence. <laughs> right. Hold it, hold that thought, John, because we have to pause for one more break here. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with John Davis of the MotorWeek television show. Stay with us. This is Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Back to Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is John Davis, the creator, host, and executive producer of Motor Week, the long-running show on PBS that provides consumer-oriented news and information about cars and related topics. If you have a question or comment for John, call us at 888-463-6748. John, before the break, we were talking about autonomous cars and the, mm-hmm. the promise and threats, maybe, that, <laughs> that, that they uh, offer. But, oh, it's uh, a scary proposition, isn't it? It is. The idea yeah. that you're sitting there in, in a car and you have no control. I mean, yeah. Two weeks ago on the show, I had uh, uh, an analyst from IHS Automotive, a Gil Juliuson, who uh, was a co-author of a study on autonomous cars. He says eventually... You know, sometime beyond 2030, they'll be building cars that have no driver controls whatsoever. In them. Oh, well, you know, if they build special lanes for them, I guess why not? It's basically a personalized mass transit system. Right, but it, uh, it, it's also is that um, you know, with the aging baby boomer uh, generation, yeah. what what some people refer to as the silver tsunami. You know, is that, <laughs> <laughs> when do you take the keys away? And and and, and he said, uh, Agol Juliusson said that uh, well, you don't have to. They don't need a driver's license at that point. Well, I mean, I can see the day that you know somebody who is a anyone, but you know, it could be someone that's a geriatric, or maybe they just have a handicap. Right. They they. Google, you know, bringing this car to my house, and this car will magically show up in front of their house, and they'll walk out, and it'll look like something out of the Jetsons, and the door will open, they'll hop in, the seat belt will probably wrap around them, and they'll say, take me to the mall, and they'll go to the mall, or whatever replaces the mall, and so it'll be kind of like a personal transportation pod, and I guess that's what we're, you know, we're heading for, and when you think about the image of the Jetsons, the old animated TV series, that's really what they had. It theirs were flying, but if you took that out, it was pretty much the same thing. Right. That that's true. And my wife has to commute uh, to downtown Chicago every day, and and uh, she drives because right. of the location of her office. It's just it would be too many stops and transfers to do it by public transit. A lot of but, people are like that. But she says that that unless she can do something else besides drive, uh, that is wasted time for her. Well, I think we've all sat in traffic jams and all recognized that it's ridiculous. I can say you and I, many times that we're headed to the airport to go somewhere, 
You know, just think about the traffic jams we sit there just to get to the airport. So wouldn't it be kind of interesting if when you're in that traffic jam, you could hit a button and maybe let the car just get you to the airport and you pull out your your uh, laptop or whatever you're working with and you're writing the first few paragraphs of the story you uh, think you're going to be covering or whatever, uh, checking your email uh, and right. not basically putting somebody at risk while doing it. So I think all of us, if it was available in our cars, would find situations where we could use the time better. And isn't that what all this electronic revolution that we've gone through is all about? Right. Let's just hope that it works the way it's supposed to. Well, the problem is, of course, is that the, every car is going to have to have the ability to talk to every other car, and or else they're all going to have to have special lanes for it. And, and the real value of the driverless car is to not have to build a lot more infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, you can put up electronic sensors a lot cheaper, but the cars have to have the equipment. i be honest with you, unless I'm extremely lucky, I don't think I'll be around to see it. But I do think it's coming. I've seen people say, oh, 20 years. But with as many older cars as there are on the market today, I don't know if 20 years is going to be enough time to make this so it's commonplace. Maybe it'll be like electric cars are today. Right. There's uh, the average age, uh, according to recent studies, yeah. is of vehicles on the road is more than 11 years old. What, and and that's right, yeah. You know, one other aspect of it that I wanted to ask you about is the cost of all these things. Cars, uh, as you mentioned earlier uh, earlier in the show, they're all pretty well equipped now. You, yeah. can, you can't get... Um, there's a, no strippers. Right. There's nothing... Uh, a few years ago, you could get a Hyundai Accent or a Chevy Avail avail with manual windows, manual door locks, no radio, no air, right. no air conditioning, and a manual transmission. And the sticker price was ninety nine ninety five, and nobody bought them. Right. <laughs> so uh, those are gone. And as we continue to add not only comfort and convenience features, but all these safety features and, and, and connectivity-type features, the cost is going to keep going up. I think car prices are out of control. I think we're as bad off now as... The luxury marks were back before Lexus and Acura and Infinity came on the screen. Uh, I mean, cars that I could afford 10 years ago, you know, models, I can't buy now. My salary hasn't kept up with car prices. Most people in this country haven't. I mean, it's the reason you were talking at the head of your show about this large large number of people that now have six-plus year uh, car loans. 33%. which is staggering. Yes. Absolutely staggering. You're going to be replacing uh, batteries, brakes, tires, and other things within six years. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the luxury car market where we're seeing, you know, the average luxury car floats our way at sixty, seventy thousand 70000 bucks these days, and they're all leased. And right. So, you know, there's some relief there. I wonder if, if leasing is not going to be becoming much more important, too, be simply to keep that monthly payment under control. But I'm I yeah, I think it opens the door. We we see the Koreans have marched through it and they've done very well, although they're starting to get expensive. If the Chinese or the Indians ever get their act together to where they're building high quality vehicles that are really capable of being exported, the door will be wide open for them to come in with a reliable, well equipped vehicle that undercuts uh, a lot of folks in price. And uh, I think it will happen. I think it's just a matter of when, and I don't know when. We keep hearing next year for the Chinese, and, and it's always next year. It's right. like hydrogen. Yeah. yeah, That's been eight or nine years of next You're year right. from the Chinese. But I'm t- talking with John Davis, the host of Motor Week. And, uh, you think, so you think there's room in the market for a reliable uh, family-type vehicle under, say, 20000 or under fifteen? Yes, but it's got to be well equipped. I think mm-hmm. you hit the nail on the head. It can't be, you know, it can't be something that that lacks normal uh, things like power windows and a decent uh, cruise control and things right. like that. People expect that, and it's got to be connectable. I mean, you you can look over at things like the Chevrolet Spark and the Sonic. They've got an awful lot of connectivity in them for uh, a very small price. Well, that needs to expand up to the larger car ranks. Mm. Uh, you also mentioned in the opening of your show the average cost of a car, I guess, for the loans was 29000 bucks. And, and when people say, what is the average cost of the car that you test on the show? And I say, we rarely see something that doesn't have a sticker of $30,000 or more. Right. 
So, and I think that's a lot of money for everyday transportation. Yes, you can go in, you see the ads from the dealers, um, and you can get the long loans. But I think there's something fundamentally out of whack with car prices right now. And maybe once these uh, the market gets done with you know filling all of this pent up demand, we're going to see a lot more bargains. Right. I I I can see where if if the uh, if one third of the buyers are taking loans of six years or longer. That's not easy for them to get back into the market unless they want to get upside down. That's right. You know, and and uh, long term, that may uh, that may hurt sales. Yeah, I I think we're riding a nice wave here that mm-hmm. may well continue for a while longer. But it's not like there aren't any some less expensive alternatives. But if you really want the cutting edge technology, you have to pay for it. It used to always drive me insane that when you would go in and buy a car. It would be nicely equipped, but that you had to have that first option package to get cruise control. Well, who doesn't want a car with cruise control, right? Right. And uh, that would add another, you know, twenty five hundred to three grand to a car. Well, I think we've seen that kind of um, packaging go to extremes now. Hmm. Right. People want the latest safety features. Often, you can't get them unless you get the best trim level, and you order about four other packages under that. And I think there's something fundamentally flawed about that long term. Uh, uh, we 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 talked about how there are a lot of people uh, who would rather have the car drive itself. Do you think um, American drivers are getting worse or better? Oh, worse because everybody's being distracted. This whole thing of distracted driving now becoming you know more of a killer than uh, alcohol on the highways. I think it's it's not. Well, it's, I know it's statistically true and it's certainly true from uh, my vantage point i mean we have laws in our state of maryland that say you know you can't use your cell phone in any right. way shape or form while you're driving every morning coming into work i see people texting and talking because they're almost unenforceable unless you're in a a, a tight urban environment and people are getting distracted and there's so much stuff on the cars we talked about the touch screens and the head up displays and this and that i mean there's a lot of distractions in the cars any uh, thoughts on how you can fix that make uh, make them better drivers i really do think that we've somehow got to make people start using the voice command systems and they need to make the voice command systems totally normal so that you can just have a normal conversation and the car will react. The systems have gotten hugely better in the last couple of years. The the Siri system from from Apple as it's getting applied and even getting improved um, is much, much, much better. Uh, but we have to get people to to do to use the systems. Right, right. now they most people that have got voice recognition systems in their car don't even use it. They don't even know they've got it. <laughs> okay. you know, and uh, I don't know how you do that, but I think voice recognition is the only thing I see right now, short of having an implant that uh, where the car understands what you're thinking, and I'm sure that's coming too. <laughs> okay. That was uh, that's John Davis. Thank you so much uh, for you're taking welcome, the time Rick. to talk and sharing your thoughts with us today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Okay. Take care. That was John Davis, the creator, host, and executive producer of the MotorWeek television show found on PBS stations across the country. And that is all the time we have for this week's episode of Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. Still finalizing plans for next week's show, so please visit my website, carstrucksandbucks.com, for news, updates, vehicle reviews, and information about upcoming shows. Thanks again to today's guest, John Davis of MotorWeek, and thanks to you for listening. This is Rick Popley saying, be careful out there and watch out for the other guy. So long, everyone.